I'm Dean Jackson. He's Joe Polish. And this is the I Love Marketing Podcast. This is Joe Polish, and I'm going to be doing an interview with someone who I think has got some really, really unique knowledge and wisdom in an area that I have never really interviewed anybody on, and there's very few people in the world that does what she does. Uh, her name is Myra Salzer, and in 1983, she founded the Wealth uh, Conservancy, uh, Inc., in Boulder, Colorado. She and her colleagues provide wealth coaching and financial planning services to clients nationwide, and she prefers advocating for and empowering those who have inherited significant assets and who want to harness their wealth potential and realize their life's greatest ambitions. And so, Myra, how are you? Very well. How about you? I'm doing awesome. I'm doing awesome. Well, we're friends, of course, and so you know we'll we'll just let everyone know that. But you you actually uh, that's my short bio on you. Uh, there's so much more, but but really, who are you and and what do you do? Um, how would you ever describe yourself? Well, I think you summed it up really well. Uh, we take care of people with very large inheritances, and um, that's a really different way of looking at money uh, and looking at financial planning, where. Financial planners are taught how do you how do you help your clients accumulate wealth? We're working with our clients to not deaccumulate, to not lose it, to preserve it, and it's a whole different way of looking at life. and And their needs are different. Um, where uh, one is focused on creating something out of nothing and building a business or whatever, we're focused on some of the Issues that don't come up every day for most people, like how do you have a fair prenuptial agreement? Or how can I be a responsible member of the family philanthropic organization? Or how can I not let my wealth interfere with friendships? And so our clients have those challenges that um, there aren't any textbooks on how to solve those questions or answer those questions. Right, right. Well, you know, that, that was interesting, the word you said, deaccumulate. Maybe we'll come back to that. But what, what I want to say in the very beginning of, of our conversation here is that the vast majority of people that will probably hear this, certainly through my podcast and through my distribution channels, uh, have not inherited their wealth. Uh, it's something that, you know, they, they may never be in that sort of situation. And you know, for the people out there that do, you're someone who has this, you know, deep, deep expertise and knowledge and experience with working with people that have very large net worths in some cases and helping them not basically screw things up and lose their money and and, and what to do with it and how to think about just how to think about it and how to how to operate with it. And you have a lot of strategies, but I also know from you know, knowing you and and talking with you and Genius Network and everything where we've spent time together, that a lot of your advice would apply to basically anyone, especially people that have have children. And how do you set your your families up in, in, in ways? So we're, I want to get into all those sort of uh, conversations. So uh, before we kind of jump into into some of the specifics, uh, describe your your company, uh, Wealth uh, Conservancy Inc. I mean, what 
who seeks it out? How do people find you? What, what is it all about? How long have you been doing it? All that sort of stuff. I know I mentioned since 1983, but I'd like to get your perspective on it. I have a little boutique, and I don't know how people find us because we're presence de confiance. We, we are so anonymous that um, most people can't even imagine that we exist. They don't know to look up uh, the Wealth Conservancy because we fly under the radar and we have to for the sake of our clients. And so we're kind of lonely players and um, and actually that's a challenge for us. How do we target and find clients? Because right. um, there's they don't all play polo and there is no Inheritors magazine. And, and so... Um, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. So, well, certainly there's there's referability, and and I mean, what made you what made you identify this group of people, these individuals? I mean, what what caused you to start this organization and become, you know, one of the world's top experts in in helping them? Well, I I did grow up in in an environment where I was surrounded by people with very um, well, I was. I went to a girls' private boarding school. I went to school with George C. Scott's daughter and Burt Lancaster's daughter and Pat Boone's four daughters and and Robert Mitchum's daughter. And so, I grew up around that, and I was one of the poor relations. And remember my own relationship with people who had money, and I. I had opinions and stereotypes and um, and would even date people because of their money. And, and now I feel so terrible about it because it's so wrong, but it's so common. In fact, I even do workshops for inheritors. And one of the exercises we do is, okay, let's, for, for the fun of it, stereotype rich people versus poor people. And, you know, the stereotypes for poor people are they work hard and they're, they bowl for fun and they drink beer and, and, you know, they have beater cars, whereas rich people, they all play polo and they drink good wines and, and, um, you know, they drive Mercedes and, and BMWs and, and so they even stereotype themselves. And, um, it's not, you know, it's not accurate, number one, right? at least for the people I work with. And, um, and so I guess through guilt is what made me get started because I appreciated the challenges that, um, that they face with those stereotypes. They just can't hide easily. Yeah, that, that's very interesting that you say that too, the stereotypes, because, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, wealthy friends and I have a lot uh, who are not. And I just have a lot of different relationships. And what people actually think about wealthy people and what is the reality of it are two different things and vice versa. I mean, it is people, people have all kinds of judgments. So since, since your focus is on money, I actually want to ask you some questions about money. One question I have for you is, you know, how do you personally think about money? For example, you know, what does money mean and what is it to you personally? Well, I happen to love it. Um, (laughs) I think it's a great tool and that's what it is. It's a tool. 
uh, Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach has said many times, if you have enough money to solve a problem, you don't have a problem. Right. And it's so true. And so how do you deploy this tool to solve problems, to enhance the quality of your life, to to maximize what what it is for you? rather than to be burdened by it or in golden handcuffs because of it. So it really how, how, how many people with, like, so when you, when you say the term golden handcuffs, that's always an interesting uh, term to me. You know, I also like prisons with golden bars, and I've, I've seen a lot of that. Um, and, it, and it makes me think of a conversation I had with a, a famous actor who was talking about another famous actor who was, uh, you know, outed for being an alcoholic and was on the cover of magazines with his shirt, you know, off in front of a bar. And, you know, real famous guy, I won't bring it up now. I've talked about it in, you know, greater depth on previous, you know, podcasts and stuff that I've done. But he said um, that if you get into the entertainment business without knowing who you are, it will misinform you. And I almost think of that as people that were just born into money. Another thing, you, you know, quote Dan Sullivan, he said some people that were born on third base and think they hit a triple. And so, um, you know, when, when people get into these traps, um, is it because they no one ever taught them strategies? Was it bad upbringing or did they just have a, a completely skewed uh, opinion on, you know, what money is or not even thinking of it as a tool? I mean, obviously, it's probably pieces of all of those things I mentioned and more, but, you know, what, what are your thoughts on how that occurs? If I can rephrase what I think your question is, is what, how do people respond to their own money and how does it affect them? Is that what you're asking? Well, yes. And, and how does it become a golden handcuff situation versus freedom? Because I pursue money because I want freedom. And in the pursuit of money in my life, my business, my career, I would find myself in either relationship traps or time traps, um, project traps, obligations in the pursuit of money where it's like, oh, my God. And then the other flip side of it is where you start owning stuff and then you wake up one day and realize I don't really own this house or this building or this stuff. It actually owns me. And that would be my version of, uh, you know, golden handcuffs. And so I'm only speaking from my frame of reference, but I'm always fascinated how there's so many people on the planet that, I mean, they will kill people over money. They will do all kinds of stuff. They will sacrifice their life and some people in jobs and careers doing things they absolutely hate because they, they need money. And I've seen people that have accumulated a lot and they actually have less, they have less freedom when they're, when they have money or at least access to it than when they were broke. Right. And I think that is a really common way of looking at the lack of freedom that can come with the encumbrances of assets and um, with wealth. But the lack of freedom that I'm referring to with inheritors is different because they're usually given their wealth with terms associated with it, whether it's in trust or they're uh, part of a family operating business, or they're in the sixth generation of a family office, and um, and there's always rules. There's always obligations that have to be fulfilled, and um, 
and they aren't free to just walk away for, from it. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't. Even if right. they decided, okay, I, I can, I don't need this money. I'm going to, you know, support myself or whatever. They don't have that freedom. And so as you, people like you who are the wealth creators, are thinking about how do you leave this in to, to your heirs so that you're not taking away their own freedom, rather than focusing on estate tax minimization or preservation for the next 300 years, focus on how do you give this in a way that it's a tool for them just like it was a tool for you. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, so use the term wealth creators. What what are some of the differences between wealth creators and people who inherit money? I mean, what are the? I mean, you obviously know both. So what 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 are the differences? I, I would say the huge, screaming, overwhelming one word difference is confidence. Hmm. Confidence. A wealth creator has been able to learn from mistakes, has, has experienced failures, has gotten back up and tried again, and, and oftentimes the, the heir has not had the opportunity to fail. I know that might sound like an oxymoron, but it's so important. And even when an heir accomplishes a lot, they don't give themselves the same degree of credit because, oh, it was easier for them because they had the tool to support their effort. For example, I have worked with three Olympiads, one of whom gold medaled. A gold medalist. You don't get a gold medal in any sport without really, really, really hard work. And she didn't give herself the same degree of credit that Another gold medalist probably would have because, you know, she's an heiress and she had tutors in tow and was able to travel the world with her coaches and, and, and learn to compete. So it doesn't count as much. Yeah, starting on third base, she, she, she hit the home run and feels like it doesn't count. Right. So how much of your, how much of your work with uh, heirs, with inheritors, uh, is really about their own psychology versus, you know, money strategies and business strategies and tax strategies and, you know, the the whole group of individuals that, as a team, your company helps, you know, connect them with to to help them. Uh, How much of this is is just mental versus, uh, you know, business strategy? say 50-50. Mm-hmm. In, in a nutshell, um, we, uh, we have two tracks, and it's the wealth coaching track and the financial planning investment management track, and, and um, we have expertise in both areas, and we, have, we outsource in both areas, and it's, I would say, 50-50. Yeah. Well, what I'd like to do, I'd like to have you go a little bit deeper on what are some of the challenges or problems that people face when it comes to inheriting money and what are some of the, 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 the specific ways that you help solve them? I think one of the challenges is 
sense of isolation that the inheritor will feel almost immediately because because of the stereotypes, because people expect them to be elated and, you know, to change their life. And, and um, you know, sudden money has so many strings, I should say. Um, so many... what. So many expectations is really the word that I'm looking for. And what happens when someone inherits a lot or receives a lot or there's a big life change that they didn't have control over is their life changes and they can't go back. And as a result of that, they experience a sense of loss their life will never be what it was. And they have to go through a mourning process just like anyone who loses, who has a loss in their life. And before, if they don't give themselves permission to go through that mourning process, they're going to make bad decisions. And so, as Susan Bradley from the Sudden Money Institute um, recommends, to have this decision-free zone to identify only the decisions that absolutely have to be made and put everything else off so that you can give yourself that permission to go through the mourning process. And it's counterintuitive. Yeah, no, definitely. It definitely is counterintuitive. I I would imagine that's really, uh, really hard for a lot of people in that situation to wrap their, their hands around, their head around. Uh, especially from, you know, like you mentioned earlier, with confidence. And I think most people probably, be it envy, jealousy, misunderstanding, uh, could never fathom why that should be a difficult situation. You're like, oh, you got all this money now and, and, and that sort of thing because they're only seeing it from that perspective. So how do you encourage? Like, so when someone's so someone's in that position, what what are some of the the first things that you do? I mean, usually people don't find you uh, right at that point in time. They probably, I would imagine, most of your clients are finding you not in the preparation stages, but you know, I might be spiraling downward, or I'm hemorrhaging money, or I just don't know what the hell I'm doing. I mean, at what stage do most people find you, or, or do you come into in into help? Oftentimes, it's um, shortly after an event, whether it's an event of someone dying or a trust terminating or a divorce because of the money or um, a death in the family that then precipitates their need to do their own estate planning. So it's usually an event. Sometimes it's a, a company buyout, um, sometimes a family office just falls apart or our client is the black sheep of the family and just isn't fitting in. So it varies, but it's usually event target, um, triggered. Right, right. Okay. So, well, let me, let me ask, ask this. Uh, probably should have asked it a little earlier on, but since most of our listeners are wealth creators, uh, what should they know about how to leave assets to their children? Because in a lot of ways, you're 
working with people who have had large assets left to them. But uh, the vast majority of people out there, they, uh, you know, including wealth creators, probably don't even know anywhere near the level of knowledge that you have in this area. So you'd be the perfect person to ask, you know, how, how do you... How do you leave things to your children and not screw them up or put them into into situations that are traps? And it's all about parenting. I'm just convinced of that. Um, from any parent, from the time their kids are two years old on, it's it's this dance between how independent do you let them be versus how protective. And, yeah, you want your two-year-old to fall and get up and fall and get up, and then when it's time to learn to ride a bicycle, fall and get up, and that's what what creates the backbone. It, it uh, is what gives you the confidence. And um, when there's a lot of money at a wealth creator's disposal, it's so easy to buy off problems, to buy off those Failures. If you know, if someone, if a, a son is having trouble with um, a boss, you know, don't make it so easy that he can just quit and not do anything. Or having trouble with a landlord, don't buy the building for him. For goodness' sake, let him get you know displaced and evicted if that's what it takes. But if there's, and it has nothing to do with money. It's just people with money have the choice. Of not of supporting versus not supporting financially, and if you, as the wealth creator, can give your children the gift of knowing that they can support themselves, that will go further than anything else. Then, how you give it, when you give it, they they'll deal with it very differently if they have that confidence if they know they can survive if they know they can make a mistake and and land on their feet yeah hmm so uh, the this term i've always liked which is don't handicap your children by making their lives too easy now it just sounds like you know a good Good quote, and I think that could be applied to employees. I think it could be applied in a lot of situations. Uh, and again, I also speak out of ignorance because I don't have children, and so I've not been, you know, put in that sort of situation uh, where I could, you know, uh, make make mistakes that probably many people uh, do. Um, how? What parenting advice as it relates to money? Do you, I mean, are there some rules of thumb that you have found across the board? Here's some real errors. Uh, I love the whole idea of buying off problems. I mean, because when you have those options, yeah, you can make things disappear with money, thinking you're really solving it. But in many cases, you're just, you know, that may be, that may be the problem, um, and or, you know, making creating it so it's so easy for someone or, you know, completely dysfunctional. Because one thing that I have seen with, with money and wealth is um, people that have addictions, um, you can buy, you know, whatever vice that your, you know, brain can conjure up, uh, that sort of stuff. So what, what is, are there any like Myra's rules sort of thing of if you do this, you're going to, you know, you're going to, uh, be better off than if you don't, that sort of stuff. Beyond what I, I already mentioned as far as giving your children the 
permission to know that they can do it themselves, and uh-huh. to recognize that whatever money you have that you give to them, it's going to amplify who they basically are. So if they tend to be have addictions, they're, they're going to be able to be addicted. If they tend to be philanthropists, they can be great philanthropists. If they tend to be athletes, they can be great athletes. If they tend to be hypochondriacs, they can be great hypochondriacs. <laughs> so the, the money just amplifies what's basically there. And at, as a parent, to, to not give them the money until what is basically there is what you feel as a parent should be amplified. That's, and it might be at age 12 and it might be at age 50. But I think that's what the job of a parent is. Right. Okay. So what are, what are some of the myths uh, around inheritance? Because I, you know, I mean, I have my own perspectives on what I think it is, but at the end of the day, I'm probably completely clueless. So I'd love to have you share some of the myths around uh, those that inherit wealth and just the whole, you know, the whole process of inheritance. Oh, I think... That one of the myths is that when one does inherit, then their problems go away, and actually they just have a whole new set of problems or a whole new set of challenges. I don't want to call it problems because it sounds negative, uh-huh. but their but their challenges are different, and um, I think that's one of the biggest myths. Yeah, like it's just going to solve everything. Um, what what about you know what about misconceptions that people have about heirs? I think that we're going back to stereotypes that they're selfish and lazy and um, self-absorbed and um, and really. If people knew our clients, probably wouldn't realize that they're inheritors. They, the stereotype isn't the stereo isn't really what exists, and um, and there's a, a big difference between inheritance of fame and that of money. And a lot of our clients have the luxury of being anonymous. Um, and they're hardworking, and they are giving, and 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 they have a big responsibility. And how do you ch- teach your own children? If you're the fourth generation, how do you teach your own children when you weren't ever taught? So they have a different set of challenges. Right, right. Is there similarities between? I mean, this is going to sound like a crazy question, but I'm just so curious about it. Are there similarities between, like, lottery winners and inheritors? Yes and no. Um, What is the few things that are different? Inheritors oftentimes, more often than not, have family members with whom they can confide who have identical trusts or this, you know, equal shares in the family operating business or um, board seats on the family office 
governance board, that kind of thing. Whereas a lottery winner is jerked out of his or her socioeconomic environment, number one, is not prepared, number two, and and is so alone and is public. Everyone, you know, that name is published. Everyone knows they get, you know, marriage proposals and requests for uh, loans and everything all immediately. And um, so they don't have the the luxury of being anonymous. I'll, I'll give you a story of one of my clients who was on the board of a philanthropic organization. It was for uh, after-school teen uh, programs. And um, she worked really, really hard at, you know, her position and loved what she was doing and loved the program. And uh, they were running out of money. And, of course, she would have just been mortified if anyone knew that she had the kind of money that she had. So she had the Wealth Conservancy write a check, it was a rather large check, to just save the organization. And, you know, bam, in one check, the whole problem was solved. And, um, and of course, it was given anonymously, so no one knew it was her. And at the next board meeting, everyone was, like, gleeful, and it was wonderful. The program has changed, and, and everything's great. And now how can we thank this anonymous person? And um, they thought about, you know, sending flowers through the Wealth Conservancy and writing a thank you note and, you know, having a toast for them or whatever, doing a video for and And she got assigned the job of writing the thank you note. And <laughs> so it was, it was really quite cute because their, their view of her would have been entirely different if they knew she was the one who wrote the check. That is, that is crazy. What did that do for her? How did she feel? I mean... Oh, she actually... She was so pleased that she could save the day without coming out of the closet. <laughs> did she Did she ever come out? No. Oh, no. She will never. That's great. That is great. What are some of the... I guess it's almost like if you're talking to a surgeon or a police officer or something, you're like, what are the craziest stories that you've ever heard? Uh, I'd love to have you describe what happens when things aren't handled uh, properly in a way so it's instructive to everyone listening that, you know, here's what you can really, here's some really big mistakes, uh, you know, that, that you can make or that I've seen happen and maybe give an example while simultaneously, you know, protecting the, the you know the names and who that is if if you're able to speak to any of that I'd love to have you you know kind of share either uh, some examples of things that you've seen or just you know some mistakes that you're you know fully aware of that that happen all the time with heirs uh, with people that you know through the whole process or you know just people in general so that all of our listeners can um, you know avoid some of these pitfalls well, I'm going to go back to the main focus that we've already touched on, which is knowing that you can support yourself. And a client of mine who was 40 years old 
when he moved to America. And he actually moved. He was local. Most of our clients are not, but he was local, and he, and he found us. And he was determined to integrate into Boulder on his own and um, and to do it all himself and buy his own house and, you know, take care of things. And um, this is a person who had never had never done laundry, had never cleaned a toilet, you know, didn't didn't know that cars had to be taken to the shop to be serviced. Mm. It was just always done for him. And he comes to the United States and, and um he was he speaks perfect English and um we we coach him on how to buy a house and he found a house and, and you know, found a, a realtor to help. And he, uh, step by step, every day it was, okay, now you can do this and now you can do that. And, um, and you know, he was eager and he, you know, so delved into it and he closed on the house and the welcome wagon came by and said, okay, this is what you need to do to get your phone lines hooked up and your cable hooked up and your trash collected and your, you know, on and on and on. And, and you know, he followed each instruction to the letter and checked in with us and made sure he was doing it right. And he was just, you could just see his self-esteem get you know, higher and higher and higher, just doing simple things that he never had an opportunity to do. And it sounds stupid, but it's real. At the end of the third week after moving in, he called me and he said, Myra, they said they'd come and pick up the trash every Tuesday and Friday morning. And, you know, it's been three weeks and they haven't come yet. And I said, well, why don't we call and find out what's going on, and so we called Western Disposal, and we were on a conference call, and you, you know, we agreed that he would do all the talking, and the, I would only speak up if there was a, an issue and or a need, and uh, so he, he explained, you know, you said you'd be there on Tuesday and Friday mornings, and I, you know, and they got his name, and they got his address, and they said to him, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so, we've been there every Tuesday and Friday morning, and uh, there hasn't been any trash put out at the end of the driveway. Like, oh, the end of the driveway. Okay, okay, I can do that. But, those, I mean, he was not, is not a stupid person. He's just ignorant in how to navigate the world. Right. And, um, and so, again, give your kids an opportunity to know that they can do it themselves. Because otherwise, (laughs) they're not going to take those risks. I think it was very brave, very courageous of him to go out and try it at age 40, having never done it before and not having, he didn't have to do that. He could have stayed in his comfortable life that wasn't very stimulating to him. And and that takes chutzpah. That that is that's 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 a great story. Well, you know what, what's really funny. I don't know if you ever read it, but I have this little book, a uh, little book of ass kickers, and I tell um, I tell a story in there about how uh, I was in in one of my trips to Necker Island, Richard Branson's island. I was in the kitchen with Richard, um, and I was talking with him, and I just said, you know, when's, when's the last time you went to a grocery store? <laughs> And he said, 
he looks up. He goes, I, I don't know if I've ever been to a grocery store. I'm like, what are you talking about? How's that even possible? And I made a comment. I said, uh, you know, did you ever have to go get beer for Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols or anything? He's like, God, I, you know, I don't ever remember doing that. And and I'm sitting there going, this is not even humanly possible. How could, you know, I mean, he's Richard Branson now, so it's probably not easy just to walk around anywhere and go shopping, but I just couldn't fathom that. And I, I said to him, when's the last time you did laundry? And he, he looked up, he goes, I don't think I've ever done laundry. And I'm like, what do you mean you've never done laundry? Uh, what, what about, you know, when you were growing up as a kid? He said, no, my mom did my laundry. He goes, he goes, Joe, you don't do that stuff. He goes, you pay people to do that. And I, I sat there and I, it was like the weirdest thing to me. I just could not even imagine it, but you know, I don't, I don't think he was making it up. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that, but uh, thank God he obviously became a billionaire and learned how to stay wealthy. Cause if he was ever put in a position where he had to do his laundry or cook his meals or things like that, he would probably have some difficulties, but this is not, again, this is not a dumb person. This is a very intelligent person. It's just, they're, you know, totally ignorant to that sort of world. So it gave me a completely, you know, different perspective about where people tend to put their energies and their talents and, and how they actually get through life and how they function and all that. But it was, it was a pretty interesting conversation. I thought it was hysterical. Yep. Touche. <laughs> so let me ask you, you got, the, you got a really nice testimonial from Peter Buffett, who's one of Warren Buffett's sons about your book. And so what are some, um, what are some other, you know, neat or interesting things that have come out of your work? I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer that because confidentiality is so number one absolute required and we we really are so guarded and you know, as a result our, our work is, is pretty lonely which is why I need 25K which is why I need strategic coach which is why I need the uh, uh, PPI and there's just I need to get out because we have to be so quiet. And so I think one of the more interesting things is where someone who's seeking fame and wanting growth and wanting marketing is, you know, wants to create spin and, and um, get a lot of PR. We, we really focus on unspin and un-PR. Yeah, yeah, and well... And I think another thing that makes it interesting is that our wealth coaches have to have their own confidence so that they're not intimidated by the wealth people that they're working with. That really screws up a relationship very quickly when, firstly, the heir, the inheritor, our clients don't have the confidence themselves. And so there's this disconnect with their own self-worth and their own net worth. And then to have a an advisor who's intimidated by their wealth, they don't know how to deal with that. So I think that's one of the interesting phenomenon that comes along with our clients and the work we do is that we have to be able to separate um, our own relationship with money with from our clients you know that that totally makes sense i mean especially i could see 
just total intimidation by some people when you're, you know, working with someone who's worth, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Uh, and they're like, oh, you know, what, what I actually do? I mean, are, are a lot of inheritors, um, heirs, are they taken advantage of by most people in financial services or is it out of ignorance? Or, I mean, are they, I, I would imagine they're viewed as prey by a lot of people. Or is that too far of a stretch? Oh, no. No, no, I think it's very realistic. Um, and um, and I think financial advisors have a shady reputation that is possibly in many cases deserved. I've seen mm-hmm. some pretty uh, gross actions that... Um, didn't seem totally kosher to me, right? And um, and so yeah, there's there's this huge fear of making a mistake and trusting the wrong people and uh, being taken advantage of, and that can be paralyzing. They, uh, our clients, you know, have don't want to make big mistakes because they can't earn it back themselves. And that that goes right back to the freedom. And so are they free to make those mistakes? Are they free to let their money empower them and, and, you know, get back up on their feet when when there are mistakes? And is it going to reflect badly on them? Or are they going to be embarrassed? And I think if there's any gift that we could give our clients, it's the gift of, Learning how to be detached from what other people think. Hmm. How do you do that? Oh, um, back to confidence. Um, and I don't know if we're 100% successful at that, but when we're putting situations into perspective that are problems for our clients based on their perception of what other people think, we will point that out to them. That's where the wealth coaching side of the business comes in versus the financial planning investment management. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not just for our clients. I think all of us are somewhat preoccupied with what other people think and we could just let go of that and be ourselves and not worry about it and um, be a lot freer. From a happiness perspective, and I don't know any way that you would completely quantify this, people that have inherited wealth versus people that have inherited fame and they have to live in the, you know, the shadow of someone, who seems to have a harder, more difficult time? Whose lives seem to be more challenged? Those with the money or those with the fame? Or is it pretty much equal or there's really no easy way to answer that? I think both. Uh, But more the fame is probably the bigger challenge because speaking and trying to find that anonymity is more difficult when you have a famous family, when Mm -hmm. you have a famous last name, when you um, you can't, (laughs) you just can't be anonymous. And so you're on stage all the time, and it's exhausting. Yeah, it, it it has to be, and a lot of people really think 
they envy those people. And it's not only are you on stage, but you actually have people that envy you and dislike you and think you're lucky, not realizing, you know, the the dark side of, of that, what they perceive as, as, as luck or advantage or success in many cases is a giant disadvantage for a lot of people. And I've seen that. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people that have, um, you know, famous, famous parents and, you know, how they have to, you know, just deal with it, what it's like to live in that world. And in the same with, you know, people that have, have money. Um, so, the people listening to this, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them would be curious as marketing or reaching heirs. And, you know, what, what should our, you know, why should our listeners care about reaching or marketing to, to people in your target market? Although, you know, not easily identifiable. What, what are things that if you could answer it, what would a, a person, you know, like, like me, for instance, you know, I sell a very high level, um, discussion group called Genius Network uh, to people that have a lot of money. And I have a couple people in the group that have actually were born into large quantities of money. I mean, one, one guy actually joined after he inherited uh, $20 million. And one of the reasons he joined is he's like, I want to make sure I don't lose it. <laughs> and and that, was, that was a new one for me at the time. That was several years ago. But, um, you know, wh- why should our listeners uh, care and what should they know about marketing to heirs? Well, the the obvious answer is heirs have money, and yeah. so you want to market to people who have money, and um, and heirs have time. Oftentimes, they have time and they have flexibility, and um, so when you can find them, when you can earn their trust, when you can provide a service that they can use, um, whether it's something like Bluefish or, or um, something like Genius Network, you know, what it does is, and this is really important, um, what it does is it gives them community. And that's not something they have without some sort of outside structure. Um, oftentimes other than family. Yep, you're right. I mean, knowing what I do for a living, I think that's one of the biggest appeals to what it is I do is just a community of people where they can come into that room and they realize, wow, you know, there's other people that are in my situation, similar situations, think like me, have aspirations, and I can sit and talk about what is important to me and what I want in my life and not be judged or uh, scolded or misunderstood or in some cases ridiculed for my ambition <laughs> and it's 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 a lonely world for a lot of people that a lot of the world thinks are you know just have success handed to them on a silver platter and it's it's really not that way at all and so i think you're you're absolutely right with the community i mean do you have any suggestions on how would people reach them i mean it seems <laughs> you know that's your biggest that's your biggest challenge right indeed it is um yeah there they our experience is that there's a draw to be anonymous and there's a draw to blend in and a draw to 
not be labeled an inheritor. As they don't want those stereotypes. And uh, where you might know of a few of your members who are inheritors, I wouldn't be surprised if there are several others that you don't know about because they are maintaining that anonymity. Right, right. Just like the story you told earlier. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you some strategies. Like if you had to share your best three or four strategies for pre- pre- preserving wealth once someone has inherited it or even made it, you know, for people that are wealth creators, what would those strategies be? You know, there's a lot of emphasis on how do you make money last for many generations? How do you debunk the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? Um, manifesto that seems to be so prevalent, and it is, and for good reason. Um, and should the goal be preservation for many, 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 many generations, or should the goal be maximum freedom? And I think that's a common goal for every heir and for every entrepreneur and for everybody is maximum freedom. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't take rocket science to preserve wealth. My grandmother, who was a Holocaust refugee, um, came to the United States poor, poor, poor. She was a millinery, and she had just one rule. And that one rule was, for every dollar you make, save 10 cents. And She died owning a house in Beverly Hills, whereas my father, who was also a Holocaust refugee, was a brilliant man. He he went to MIT, was instrumental in in in, uh, developing the first digital computer for his PhD thesis. He was at the ground floor of Magnavox. He was at the ground floor of TRW. He. He had every opportunity, and he always was looking for the next sexy big deal, and he didn't save that 10 cents on every dollar he earned. So it's not, again, rocket science. It's really easy. Just spend less than you make. That's all (laughs) it takes. Right. That's a good one. And, uh, you know, that's actually works very well for me, too. I mean, even in my 20s, I was, you know, I, there's a couple of things that I did that I think served me well. Um, buying life insurance when I didn't even have anyone to really leave it to, but just the whole mindset of getting in that mode. It, not, it's not even about life insurance. It's just about, you know, insurance isn't for sale when you need it most. So always protecting myself there always putting money away automatically. You know, I've been doing that for years and I've had situations where I needed access to cash, but because I had saved it and I had made that a process, I have people that have companies that are generating multiples of what, you know, my business has has generated or has generated, but I would have more access to cash than they did because of those you know, sort of habits that were instilled uh, early on that I learned and that I that I took action on. So, uh, a lot of times, just the consistency with things that are just sound common sense uh, is is important. But most people 
they don't do it. Uh, what else? What else would you recommend as a as a strategy? Uh, the rest is is you know really common sense. Diversify, minimize your taxes, and um, and identify who you are with what you have. Mm-hmm. What about like the the topic of giving um, philanthropy? When it how do you deal with that topic when it comes to inherited wealth? I loved that um, NK talk you did with Dan, where you really debunked the giving back term. Um, right. Because it's so true, and many of our clients or people with inherited wealth also inherit a family philanthropic organization, for example. I, a friend of mine, for example, uh, was executive director on, of his family's um, over-a-billion-dollar uh, foundation. And, you know, he was on the cover of, of Philanthropy Magazine. And, and I have to wonder, I, I don't consider him a philanthropist. He's an executive director of a philanthropic organization. Right. And, um, and so the, the ability to write a check does not, ipso facto, make someone a philanthropist. And philanthropy is a wonderful way for clients, for inheritors, to build that community we were talking about earlier um, and by actually being philanthropic, by actually... There's, there's a wonderful book out called Volunteer Vacations. I don't remember the author. And um, he's, he organizes and has suggestions of all these you know, endeavors, that, places you can go and things that you can do with a philanthropic bent. And whether it's building houses in Africa or cleaning latrines in South America or whatever, it's, it's all oriented towards really the sweat equity of, of philanthropy. And that is, that to me is more philanthropy than just writing the check. Did I answer the question? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Actually, I, I would have to plug JoeVolunteer.com, something where someone took one of my ideas about uh, when I was in a nursing home and saw a lonely um, person, um, you know, older person, uh, that, uh, and it just really made me think, man, you know, how many people are out there? Because um, my friend Janice was having a gratitude dinner for her husband who recently passed away, and uh, he was still alive at the time. This was just, you know, a couple months ago. And she was doing this uh, gratitude dinner, and I saw this person in a nursing home who was just alone. And I was talking to my girlfriend and said, man, you know, there's got to be a way to use technology to link people that want to volunteer with organizations and places that need them um, without all of the bureaucracy that prevents it from happening and how do they even find each other. So it's almost becomes like, you know, Uber for um, volunteers. And this guy heard me talk about it on one of my podcasts, uh, a guy named Chip Franks, and he built uh, JoeVolunteer.com. And oh, where, 
just and it's not you know there's no intention of making money off of this it's just to help link people that want to volunteer with other people but it's it's really about yeah putting that effort forth so that that brought it up there that was kind of a little tangent but it made me made me just want to plug that because I thought it was cool and there there are a lot of people with um with access to resources and funds and money that do great things in the world as as a result of it. But to go back to the point, it, it is really about giving, not giving back. And I imagine a lot of people that inherit their wealth, there's all there's a lot of parasites that come out of the woodworks and try to guilt them into, oh, you should, you know, donate to this or give to that. Um in a lot of in a lot of ways they probably take take advantage of, of well, these people. That, that is the you use the definitive word is guilt. If if the check is written to because of a guilty feeling, um, then it certainly isn't philanthropy. And right. um, Lynn Twist, in her book, The Soul of Money, talks a lot about giving with soul. And um, that's a really important component um, yeah. in, in the gift. Otherwise, it's really not a gift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Lynn is a friend of mine, so that's that's oh, cool. Really? That you put in. Yeah, yeah. So with what what should, I'm just going to ask you a few more questions, and then we'll give people some resources because you've written some books about this this whole topic too. So what should someone who's inherited wealth um, watch out for that we've not discussed that we've not mentioned so far? I think if making those unnecessary changes shortly after receiving money, making those decisions before you've done, gone through the mourning process is um, something definitely to avoid, to honor that decision-free zone, to not be seduced by the sizzle of, of a great deal or um, seduced by being part of a quick community um, that really is more interested in your money than in you. Um, and avoid letting your wealth boost your own self-esteem. Don't buy rounds for everyone in the bar because you want to buy them friendship. You know, you right. buy their, and and um, that's a mistake I've seen is, is boosting self-esteem by spending money. Hmm. I imagine that is a big one because it's, it's really, that probably doesn't boost your self-esteem at all. All it does is create um, probably a situation where a lot of people that have entitlement attitudes want to hang around you a lot. Yep. So Regarding um, family issues, how do you suggest people navigate the family issues that could come with wealth, either inherited or, you know, wealth creators that is earned? Interesting. I went to a postgraduate program for the Bowen Center for Family Systems Theory, and there are, you know, families are, you know, are families, and there are going to be weird dynamics no matter what, no matter how much money. And understanding how family systems work is really insightful in terms of how to work with individuals within the family. But there's also some 
you know, maybe a handful of people across the country who work with families of wealth on the whole family meetings. They do family retreats and they come up with a mission statement and a purpose for families of wealth. So, um, I don't know. Did I veer from the question? What was the question? Just um, like any family issues that someone has that comes with wealth, just like, for instance, you know, to give you a specific one, family members that or friends that are asking you for money. I mean, how do you navigate jealous relatives? How do you navigate people that just expect you to solve some of their problems because you have money that could solve their problems or just the complexity of, you know, extreme things, lawsuits, you know, I, it's my money. I deserve this. I deserve that. Just, just those sort of issues. Right. Well, the inheritor's family is usually in the same position as the inheritor. So those dynamics don't come up. It's with the married into it family mm-hmm. <laughs> that it does, and you know that's definitely a challenge. How do you have a fair marital agreement? How do you have? How do you deal with the non-moneyed spouse's family? And what are those balances? And what are the expectations? And um, and it's interesting. It seems to me that. Most of my married clients, and certainly this isn't a rule, but I would say the majority of our clients who are married are the the non-moneyed spouse's family is a more functional family in general. And... Hmm. um, that just seems to be, you know, that is what is an attractant, not the only thing, obviously, but one of the attractants of the non-moneyed spouse is the, the inheritor gets to be part of a normal family. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, because they're, they're, they're probably, I'm sure you, you, you could, you have many uh, stories that you'll probably keep anonymous of <laughs> the crazy making that takes place in a lot of uh, in a lot of families. Well, you, you said deaccumulate very early on in the beginning of this. Uh, talk about that uh, about that whole because one of the biggest things that you do is protect people from making bad decisions to cause them to lose their money. So, what could you say about that? Well, I think. Losing some money, losing a reasonable amount of money is not the end of the world. And I think that if we can give our clients the space to really focus on what's important to them rather than how not to lose and how to let their wealth be a tool for them, rather than a burden to them, um, then, and not look at the day-to-day and not, I mean, what, what the stock market is doing today or whatever, but to look at that long-term focus and what's important. 
and how do you take that what's important in the long-term future and how do you act on that now? And it's never the stock market. It's, you know, it's how do you plant the seeds for that long-term freedom, for that long-term gratification. And um, so prevention of loss can't be the focus. It can't be always worrying about the accumulation. They, and they are painfully aware that this could be it, that mom's not going to die again, that um, whatever trust they have is what they're going to have or, or whatever. And so I think the best way I can facilitate their happiness is to not focus on the accumulation or deaccumulation, but rather on them and their own personal growth. And then gotcha. the money is there to support them in that effort. Hmm. No, that's good. That's good. Um, so, well, you, you, you've written some books. I'm going to ask you about your books in just a moment, but I want to ask you, is there any idea, topic, or question that we haven't discussed yet, but we should because it would be super valuable for someone listening to this? I think what what I'd like to ask the listeners is to... To ask yourself, what are your own stereotypes about people with money, especially people who didn't earn it themselves? And, and question whether your own stereotypes are fair or not. Um, inheritors are an underrepresented group, and they don't have an advocate. And... Um, and there are stereotypes that I would love for your listeners to just question. Just ask yourself, what, is, what are your ideas of who inheritors are? And would you be open-minded about that? Right. Nope, that's, that's good. That's a good exercise because you, <laughs> the, you know, the more you actually understand the mindset of different individuals, or at least think about it, you'll approach them differently, you'll have more compassion, and certainly speaking as a person who makes uh, the majority of their their living um, as a marketer, as a storyteller, and helping other people do the same thing, uh, it's, it's more about psychology than it is anything else, and uh, the more you understand what drives and motivates people and what drives and motivates yourself, I think the, uh, the easier it is to, is to create and understand the value that you provide in the world and then link other people with that in a way that they will actually you know, pay you for it and associate with you and all that sort of stuff. So very good. So Myra, you've written a few books for inheritors. What are they and uh, why'd you write these books and how do people, how do people get them? Um, well, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, three main books. The first one, The Inheritor's Sherpa, is a workbook on 
developing accomplishment skills, which might sound pretty simple, but for an heir who's never had to accomplish anything, um, these are, it's a workbook to help them learn those accomplishment skills. Um, the second book um, is Living Richly, and what that book does is it, it follows three amalgamated heirs. Um, the, these are amalgamations of, of clients, um, and all with completely different circumstances. One is third generation, one is seventh generation, and uh, one in between, and, and um, very different upbringing. And it follows them through the process of how they receive their money and how they learned to integrate with their wealth. And the final book, which is called The Cabin, is a story, a true story, about two gentlemen who invested in a technology that could potentially change the planet for the good. And this is a technology that could have as much impact as the microchip does. And um, and they, along with many, many, many other investors who mostly are friends and family, or at least we built the cabin for them, um, will, if this technology um, proves to be what they expect it to be, uh, will simultaneously enjoy a liquidity event um, that will essentially change every single investor's life. And, um, and it will be almost like their inheritors because it will, they'll be jerked out of their current financial position. Even if they're millionaires now, they're going to be billionaires. And what we've done is we envisioned this, what we're calling a family of affinity office, to provide services to meet the needs of these investors. And, um, and it's everything from, of course, the investment management and estate planning to education. We'll have camps for the kids uh, to offshore philanthropic organizations and um, the concierge services that uh, will enable them to stay anonymous and have community. And it's just going to be a wonderful, wonderful organization. And if this happens, the uh, Wealth Conservancy will go from this boutique of eight of us to a firm with hundreds of employees. (laughs) And who knows? But this is the book about the vision of that. Wow. Well, I've not read The Cabin, so I actually want to read it now. Now, now hearing you even say that, I was like, oh, huh, this sounds very interesting. So um, where do people go to learn more about this, get your books, and even work with you and your uh, firm if they uh, would like? Pretty easy. My name is Myra Salzer, and you can Google me. That's S-A-L-Z-E-R, and um, the website is www 
twcinc.org. Inc. as in the Wealth Conservancy, inc.org. Exactly. Perfect, perfect. Any famous last words? Thank you. Thank you for your interest. I think, obviously, it's a a topic I'm passionate about and committed to, and I'm really, really grateful that you gave it this exposure. I'm very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. What you're doing is very unique, uh, very much needed. Uh, by a lot of people, and also we've had ma- you know many conversations about communication, which we didn't even get into on on this uh, interview. Uh, but I just want to encourage anyone if this uh, if you know anyone in the world that has inherited money or will be doing it soon, it would probably be good to let them know about Myra. Uh, it could probably help prevent uh, a lot of pain and probably the uh, wastage or expenditure or theft of of their their assets and resources in many cases. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, this made you think about. You know, money, your children, and your own life. And if you want to, if you want more, then I recommend uh, read Myra's books. And I'd love to hear uh, the comments uh, of this interview wherever I post it, because I'll probably post this on different versions of my uh, podcast and even make it a bonus episode on my marketing podcast, just so people can hear this. And uh, and we'll go from there. So, Myra, as always, it's great talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, sharing your knowledge and uh, look forward to hearing what our listeners have to say. So thank you and uh, have a great day. And you as well. Thank you, Joe. Sincerely. <laughs>